Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of How to Stop Worrying and Start Living by the great man, Dale Carnegie. Author of How to Win Friends and Influence People. I think the title says it all. Stop worrying, start living. Important ideas for whenever, especially now. So the seeds of this book came from when he was teaching night classes on public speaking. We've already reviewed both of his books, How to Win Friends and Influence People and Stand and Deliver. Part of the advice he gave and part of the advice everyone gets a lot of the time, everyone's heard it before, just stop worrying, just stop mm. just stop worrying. And you go back home, you think, oh, how am I going to do that? <laughs> well, it's good advice, but as you say, what do you do next? Uh, so Dale thought, well, maybe I should work this into my class. He went to the New York Public Library. He went to go and find some great books about worrying that he could reference. He found 22 books on worrying. But then he found in the very next alphabetic category, he found 189 books in the category next to it, which was worms. Mm. He thought, how is there nine times more books on worms than on worrying? Yeah, I don't get it. Worrying something <laughs> that everyone has to deal with and it can really destroy you. He's got a really cool metaphor here of this gigantic tree in Longs Peak in Colorado. And right now, it's the ruins of this this beautiful tree that once lived. And it stood for 400 years and it was just a seedling when Columbus landed at San Salvador. So during the course of its long life, right, it just copped lots of lightning. So 14 times it got smashed up. It went through avalanches and different kinds of storms, uh, four centuries of thunder, and went through bushfires and all these massive events. And it survived them all. But in the end, it was the army of beetles that attacked the tree and leveled it to the ground. The insects, they'd found their way through the bark and gradually destroyed it from the inside out. One at a time, just one tiny beetle was able to weasel its way in there. And so it wasn't those amazing, massive things that you'd think would normally knock over a tree. It was these tiny, tiny little beetles, a whole bunch of incessant attacks that would work its way through the bark and gradually destroy its inner strength from the inside out. And so that's sort of the metaphor for this book, that throughout our lives, we can often bear the big things you know we we lose a job but we make our way through we get a divorce we make our way through um but it's maybe those small things every single day that we're worried about that gradually over time build up and build up and sap our strength from the inside out mm, and what be those little nagging beetle kind of thoughts that the thing that actually just takes you down in the long run so in this episode we're going to cover it in two parts first of all how to stop worrying through the context of yourself and the events you go through and then also stop worrying about other people around you and how they influence you. And following that, we're going to be talking about how to start living, which is uh, the kicker of the book, going through mindset, and then also how to make the most of certain situations and play the hand you're actually dealt in life. So Carnegie says in his introduction, there's nothing really groundbreaking here. There's nothing revolutionary. There's probably nothing brand new. All the things that you're going to hear are pretty basic common sense stuff. But of course, they're the things that we're not doing every single day. We've often forgotten how to apply them. So just a nice little simple reminder of some of the things we know we should be doing, but we probably aren't. First off, we're going to look at how to stop worrying about yourself. And there's a story here of Dr. Osler, who was teaching his Yale students about how his stories when he used to work on an ocean liner. So he'd actually crossed the Atlantic a few times. So he was a bit of a bad boy when it came to sailing <laughs> this man. And when he was on this ocean liner crossing some wild, wild waters, he could stand on the bridge, press a button, and presto, all this clanging of machinery happened on the, on the ship and various parts of the ship were actually shut off from one another. And the ability to shut off one compartment to the other meant that water and damage in one area just doesn't just flow through and take the whole ship down because he was able to shut everything off into watertight compartments. And so taking this analogy, he says that that's like us or like the students he was teaching. 
like the ship that can shut off into watertight compartments, we need to be able to shut ourselves off into daytight compartments in the sense that there's a hell of a lot of things that we can worry about, things from the past and things from the future, but we really need to be able to close that all out and focus on one day at each time. Thomas Carlyle from the pub, he says, our main business <laughs> is not what to see what lies dimly at a distance, but to do what lies clearly at hand. And this is what we need to do. So, when we're living in the present, we need to touch the button and realize at every point and every level of your life, the iron doors are just shutting on the past, right? You can't do anything about it. They're dead yesterdays. And then we need to touch another button to shut off with a metal curtain, the future, the unborn tomorrows. Because really, if you think about all the dead yesterdays and the unborn tomorrows, they're never really there. You're always just living in the present. And the present moment is the only thing that you're actually taking part in. It's a waste of energy to add all of this mental distress and nervous worryings about you know, being either depressed about the things that have happened in the past or being anxious about what may happen in the future because all this worrying is really going to detract from being able to give your best effort today. And of course, you know, that doesn't mean just, you know, just focus on today, don't have any plans for the future. But the big difference is that, yes, well, you need to be thinking about the future, you shouldn't be worrying about the future. You shouldn't have any anxiety towards tomorrow. And the best way to do that is to be doing the best possible work today. Really, the best way to set up that future that you want to have is to really forget about the future, not worrying about it and focusing purely on the present. Yeah, very easy said rather than done. I think when you go home, naturally your brain just starts ticking on, ticking on of what happened that day and what happened tomorrow. But when you're using your brain to just tick over these events, it's really got no utility. It's actually not going to change anything from the past, nor most of the time it's not actually going to help you for tomorrow. So be able to shut those two things off. You can actually live in the present and ironically, you're going to be more effective also. Most definitely. So our focus should really be not on yesterday, not on tomorrow. Our focus is solely on from now until bedtime. Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, initially from the pod, but he wrote a couple of good books as well. He says that uh, any man, well, this is a, we need to remember this is a pretty old book as well. Mm. But let's say anyone, <laughs> uh, anyone can carry their burden however hard until nightfall. Anyone can do their work however hard for one day. Anyone can live sweetly, patiently, lovingly, purely till the sun goes down. And this is all that life really means. So I think it's a, a lot better rather than thinking that you know you have to be a superstar forever, just think today I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to focus on doing the best possible job I can today and then I'm going to go to bed and, and rest up. Yeah, he did well there, Rob. And this is one of the tragic things about human nature. We kind of tend to put off living. So it's kind of strange. Like when you're a little boy, if you remember back to that, you think, oh yeah, when I'm a big boy, I might be able to go taste my first beer, <laughs> go to a party, drive a car or whatever. And then you get there and then you grow up a little bit more and you think, all right, now I'm at university now and I'm having these beers and going to parties. I can't wait to get out and enter the workforce. And then you get to the workforce and again, it's like, all right, I can't wait till I've finished my graduate program and I'm a director of this company. And then you get there and then this is kind of the, the cycle that a lot of people go through. And it's kind of tragic because when they get to the very end, you realize that you haven't lived the whole way. You've just been constantly living in the future. Yeah, you're always thinking about what you're going to do when you get to that next level. Yeah, life is slipping away at incredible speed. Like it's going that fast at 19 miles per second. I don't know how Carnegie measured that, but <laughs> we'll take him at his word. He got the, got the stopwatch out. <laughs> but uh, today really is our most precious possession and it's our only sure possession if you think about it. 
So that's what we need to do. We need to pull across those iron doors from the past and block out the future. We're living in these daytight compartments. So ultimately, the first step to how to stop worrying about ourselves is to be present. Mm. And that's a really big thing, being present in that moment to moment to make the most of life. But there's no doubt that every now and then throughout your life, something big's going to happen, right? You're going to get slapped up. You're going to be thrown to the ground. Some kind of event's going to come in that you didn't expect coming in and you know, you actually are going to be suffering and going through loads of pain. And this is probably the where you're worrying in your life is actually peaking. So, you know, what do you do in those moments? Most certainly. Douglas, a bloke who was, uh, you know, one of the students in Dale Carnegie's night, night classes, he was telling the story of how he got struck by tragedy just many times in a row. So, he had a five-year-old daughter, she died. And then 10 months later, he had another daughter. But then within her first five days of life, she died as well. So he's gone back to back here. Two daughters have died and the the double trouble was really too much for him to bear. He felt like his body was just sort of trapped in a vice. He felt like the jaws of this vice were contracting tighter and tighter and bearing down on him, his, his body, his mind, this tension, this grief. He felt like he was absolutely paralyzed by this sorrow. But it was he was lucky he had one child left. He had this a four-year-old boy and the four-year-old boy said, Daddy, will you build a boat for me? Now, when he's stuck in his sorrow, he's paralyzed by the, the deaths of his two daughters. The last thing he wanted to do was build a boat. But this, mm. little, this little pesky son wouldn't leave him alone until he built a boat. And so in his shed, he was carving out this boat. It took him about three hours. And by the time it was finished, he actually realized that that was the first three hours that he was actually able to mentally relax. It was the first period of mental peace that he'd had in, in months. Mm. So when you're going through those darkest of dark moments like he was, he realized that it's difficult to worry whilst you're so busy doing something else and your mind's completely occupied in planning and thinking. So building the boat in this case for that three hours, you just kind of knocked worry out of the ring completely. So from that moment, he realized that he resolved to keep on busy. So what he did, he walked around his house, taking a little notepad around and looking for all the little odd jobs that he could do. You know, maybe it was fixing up the the bookshelf or maybe there was a little hole in the wall that he had to patch up. He made a list of all these things that needed repairs. And over the, the course of the next couple of weeks and months, it gave him a big list of things to do that was able to keep him busy. And by keeping busy, he was able to block the worry out. Carnegie says nature rushes to fill the vacant mind. And if there's been a tragic event in your life and your mind's vacant, you know, what else can happen other than being completely occupied? I think it's easy to go on the high horse here and say, oh, yeah, you're just running away from something and not mm. processing it. But I don't really think that's the case. I think this is really good advice because when you are going through those moments of suffering, anything like this can, I'd imagine, really help. I've been lucky yeah, yeah. that I haven't had to deal with something of this magnitude like... Uh, our mate Big here, Douglas. Big Douglas. Yeah, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I don't think it's either you just completely ignore it and pretend it didn't happen or you sit there and wallow in sorrow. You've got to find that middle ground where obviously a lot of bad stuff's happened, but you need to find ways to keep yourself busy. And that sort of leads on to the, the next part, which is taking action and being decisive. We've got all these problems around us, but how do we actually start to move forward with our lives? So this is starting to get a lot more rational, right? Like how to analyze and just solve your worry problems. And the first rule in this equation is to go out there and get the facts because unless we have all the right facts, we can't possibly even attempt to solve our problem intelligently. So confusion is the chief cause of worry. It's just people just being unsure about things and not having any facts and not sure what to do. And he says half the worry in the world is caused by people trying to make these 
big decisions before they have sufficient knowledge before they make them. Yeah, I think if you're if you've got a little seed of worry in your mind and then you're thinking about it, you extrapolate it a bit, you make some assumptions. It's like this doom spiral where you start to just worry more and more because you'll extrapolate. If this happens, then that's going to happen next. Oh shit! If that happens, then oh my god, this is going to happen next. It's going to be like this intense spiraling out of control. Where really the first step to stop that spiral is to get the actual objective facts about what's going on. Now, the second step here is what can I do about it? My brain goes straight to a quote by the Dalai Lama that I remember was like, uh, he says, if there's nothing you can do about it, then there's no point in worrying. Mm. If there's something you can do about it, there's no point in worrying. Yeah. Because if you can do something about it, and go and do it. you just go and do it and then the worry disappears. Yeah. I think if you confront yourself with that question, you know, you, if you're stuck in this worry, if you confront yourself with the question, what am I worrying about? Like actually, what am I worrying about? And then what can I do about it? It's going to start to lose its grip on you, I think. You're going to start to realize that either the thing you're worrying about is not that important or you're going to realize that, hey, this is what I can actually mm. do about it. Yeah, because if you confront that worry, say if you're studying for any, or you're really worried about an exam coming up and you just address that worry and you look at it front on, probably the conclusion you land at is like, shit, I better study hard because mm. you know I don't want to fail this course. So it just has a real positive kind of kicker to it. So that first step there is to ask, what am I worrying about? Get yourself the facts. The second step is, what can you do about it? And then the third step is to make that decision and actually go and do something about it. William James, he comes up a lot, father mm. of psychology or, or something like that. He says that uh, when we have a decision, once it's reached, then execution is your only next step. He says that we need to make that decision based on all the facts we've got and go into action. Don't stop to reconsider. Don't hesitate. Don't worry. Don't retrace your steps. Don't keep looking over your shoulder to, mm. to wonder if you've made the right decision or not. Just take that action and keep moving forward. Dale also gives advice on how to stop worrying about other people. He tells us of a story of a man who attended his course. He was a big dog businessman from Texas and he was burned with indignation and he was pretty pissed off when he came up to him. And it was from something that happened actually 12 months ago. So he's got 34 employees and he gave them all approximately $300 in Christmas bonuses. So in Carnegie's time, this is probably big yeah, money, right? This book was like the uh, early 1950s, I think, 53 yeah. or late 40s, early 50s. So that's a lot of money, man. So we'll call he it gave, a couple of grand. Well, right? he, gave, he gave 10 grand in bonuses at that time. So if you with inflation, it's mm. probably a, that's a sizable chunk of change for sure, yeah. 70 years ago. Absolutely. So he's looking back on this moment 12 months ago and he's really pissed off. That's because not one of those 34 employees went up to him and thanked him for that Christmas bonus. Yeah, he said, oh man, I wish I didn't give a single penny to anyone. And so it's sort of like, well, he gave this bonus to them as like, you know, you've done a great job this year. We've all worked together well as a team. Here's a thank you from me. But he was expecting a thank you back from them. And when he didn't get the outcome that he expected, it basically filled him with poison. Mm. So he's wallowing in self-pity that he never got this appreciation he was hoping to get out of his own gesture. Yeah, who knows? They might have just seen it not as a gift, but as you know, some kind of barter for something. Them doing overtime and working the extra hours, or maybe he was so critical and unapproachable that they didn't really, you know, bit afraid to go up to him and thank him or anything like that. But here's the point: this man made the human and distressing mistake of expecting gratitude from people. Carnegie says that this is human nature and it's always been human nature and it probably always will be. It's not going to change in our lifetimes that the person giving the gift is expecting gratitude and often the person receiving the gift doesn't give the gratitude. So it's this weird sort of dissonance here where both parties are going to feel a little bit awkward about it. 
yeah, why not accept it? You're going to come across dicks. Right? Mm. It's just a factor of life. You're going to get people in gratitude. And Marcus Aurelius, he's got a sick quote in his diary. He said, I'm going to meet people who talk too much, are selfish, egotistical, ungrateful. I won't be surprised or disturbed for I couldn't imagine a world without such people. So whenever you're giving somebody a gift or whenever you're doing a favor for somebody, don't add the second part of that, which is expecting gratitude in return because you're only really setting yourself up for disaster. If you're giving a gift, do that as a single act of its own, doing something that is going to give you inherent benefits from the act of giving the gift itself rather than trying to add that extra element of expecting something back in return. And the book's second piece of advice on stopping worrying about other people is to realize that no one kicks a dead dog when it comes to criticism. Yeah, I hope no one's kicking any dogs, but especially dead dogs. Mm, mate, there's a few odd ones out there. Did you see that <laughs> Don't Fuck With Cats, that show? I did. That was, uh, that was pretty messed up. Yeah. So some, people do, up. some people literally do. Yeah. That's not good though. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. That, that was very fucked up. But yeah, so no one kicks a dead dog. And so this is going back uh, another bloke called Robert. Again, another bloke from the pub who just went and took one of uh, Dale's courses probably. But he was working his way up as a, as a young person. He was a waiter, a lumberjack, a tutor, a, a clothesline salesman. And within eight short years, he was inaugurated as the president of the University of Chicago. So this bloke who's 30 years old, it's pretty incredible for him mm. to work up from where he started to where he got to. But of course, the older educators who had been lecturing in the university for decades they started shaking their heads thinking, who is this guy? He's, he's too young. He's too inexperienced. His views are cockeyed. You know, the criticism came from everywhere. It was like a, a rock slide of criticism that people were throwing shade on him. Even the local newspapers started to weigh in thinking, yeah. who's this Robert bloke who's come out of nowhere and now is the, the president of the university? Yeah, the day he was inaugurated, the newspapers, all, they all attacked him. But when, uh, when Rob was asked, like, uh, what do you think about all this? Everyone's attacking you. He said, yes, it's severe, but remember, no one ever kicks a dead dog. And the more important the dog is, the more satisfaction people get in kicking him. Yeah, so it's a good twist there that thinking that if you're getting criticism, it's only because you're actually somebody who's worth criticizing. People are getting joy out of criticizing someone who's higher than them. People aren't going to be hanging shit mm. on a, a low-level nobody. Yeah, it's true. If you look around the world, name anyone who's at a high level getting attacked in newspapers. Mate, they're all successful in some kind of way. Yeah. Like if you look at both extremes, someone like Donald Trump, right? Like probably no one in the world gets more attacked than him mm. or our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison and all that. But at the same time, they're just extremely successful people. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of directly correlated. The more you get criticized and attacked is also with how well you're doing. Yeah. I go to the other extreme, like Greta Thunberg as well, right? Like she's just a, a 16-year-old lady or 15-year-old lady a lot more successful than anyone else will ever be. And because of that, she's getting attacked by all these grown men and women out there who are getting quite uh, brutal on mm. this, this little girl. Yeah. So, if you're basically, if you're getting criticism, it means you're doing pretty bloody well, that you're somebody who's worth criticizing. And uh, Carnegie says that when someone attacks somebody successful, it really says more about the attacker than the attack E. Arthur Schopenhauer said that vulgar people take huge delight in the faults and follies of great successful people so they're just waiting people you know they're waiting in the backgrounds they're waiting for donald trump to say something stupid so they can attack him mm. but of course those people are never going to get to donald trump's level that's it so remember that just unjust criticism is often a disguised compliment it's an interesting way to uh, to cop a bit of criticism isn't it yeah it's, yeah it's obviously tough when you're getting attacked but it's important to realize that you're only getting attacked because you're somebody who's worth attacking yeah i like it you probably learn something from the criticism as well. You can't just yeah. go around just <laughs> popping it and 
Just saying, oh, they're beneath me, so they're attacking me. Yeah, yeah. and you smile <laughs> and nod. You probably get punched. Yeah. <laughs> Too good. And then the, another important thing about people is don't get even. He tells a story of a, a, a grizzly bear that can go and, and wipe out a human in one foul swoop. It can pretty much, uh, it can pretty much dominate any animal. The, the grizzly bears of Yellowstone Park, but there's one animal that they never try to attack, and that's the skunk. Even though with basically one finger they could they could knock out the skunk, they realize that by attacking an animal like this, they're just going to get covered in stink. Mm. And so Carnegie extrapolates that to like humans he talks about the skunks walking around new york city on two legs there's a lot of people out there that they're really not worth attacking because if you get drawn down to their level and start start trying to get even with a skunk who's done you wrong you're just going to get all covered in stinky stinkiness yeah stinky stink you don't want that because when you think about when you hate your enemies they've got power over you power over your sleep your appetite your blood pressure your health and your happiness and your enemies, the ones that you're hating, they would just absolutely love it. They'd mm. lap it up if they knew how much you're just brooding over, uh, you know, that single person. But in reality, you're better off for the enemy. The best way you can get back at them is just to not think about yeah. him in yeah, an exactly. ironic kind of way. Yeah, Confucius says, to be wronged or robbed is nothing unless you continue to remember it. So if someone wrongs you or if someone robs you, if you're stewing over this, if you're letting it affect your mood, if you're letting it affect your health and happiness, then they've really got you. And if you're just thinking about, how am I going to get this guy back? What can I do to him to get even? You're, you're pretty much screwed. If you can yeah. just forget about it, stop remembering it, then you've taken the high road and you haven't lowered yourself to getting covered in a skunk's stink. Yeah. I still haven't forgotten that bloke who sold my laptop. <laughs> 12 months now. Anyway, he's about three was- times my size. He'd take me out if I got angry at him. So there's a lot of Jesus stuff in this book and he's got a quote here from the great man, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So I like this quote, instead of hating our enemies, let's kind of pity them and thank God that life has not made us what they are. So instead of like leaping into condemnation and revenge, give them your understanding and your sympathy and your empathy. And in reality, if you were someone who had the exact same life circumstances and this dick or this asshole who's stolen your laptop, <laughs> I'd also be that person stealing a laptop of just an innocent man That's in it. Albert Park doing a podcast. <laughs> That's it. As Carnegie says, let's never try and get even with our enemies because if we do, we'll hurt ourselves far more than we hurt them. So that was part one, how to stop worrying. We shouldn't let those little beetles get inside us, infect us, sap our energy from the inside out. So in order to stop worrying, we need to stop worrying about ourselves, which means we need to be present, keep busy, and be decisive to take action. And we need to stop worrying about other people. So we shouldn't expect gratitude from people. We need to realize that no one ever kicks a dead dog, and we shouldn't get angry, and we shouldn't try to get even. That's how we stop worrying. So part two is now time to start living. There's eight words here by Marcus Aurelius. Our life is what our thoughts make it. So that's a big thing when it comes to start living. It's all about your thoughts. If we think happy thoughts, we will be happy. If we think miserable thoughts, you're going to be miserable. If you think you're fearful thoughts, you're going to be fearful. If you think failure thoughts, you're going to be a failure. I think this is 100% true. I think... uh, Everyone saw the law of attraction and they hear this we are what we think kind of thing and everyone's overcorrected the other way almost, I think. Mm. They think this is just woo-woo spirituality shit. But I think this is actually very practical advice and extremely true if you just look at it, right? If you just 
have dirty thoughts, bad thoughts, you're just going to do the actions that reflect your thoughts and then you, the results are going to reflect your actions and it's a negative feedback loop like that. That's it. The French philosopher Montaigne said that a man is not hurt so much by what happens but by his opinions of what happens. And so, Carnegie's saying, well, what's he saying here? Is he saying that you shouldn't just get pissed off if someone does bad? And Carnegie says, yes, that's exactly what it should be. <laughs> if someone does something bad, obviously, that's a bad thing. But if you then spin it up into your mind to be so, so bad, this guy's so evil, he's completely ruined my career, that's going to be so much worse than the individual act itself. Yeah, I love the idea of thinking heaven and hell as a metaphor for something you're living on earth. It's got nothing to do with this afterlife kind of stuff. If you do these kind of wrong actions, over time, you actually will be living in a, in a living hell. If you do the right actions, over time, you're probably going to have the friendships and the relationships and the kinds of success that means you actually are living as heaven on earth. But it always just starts with the, the thoughts as the, the start of that mm. process. Yeah, Big Willie comes back in here, William James. Big Willie. He, he says that we think that action follows feelings as in if we feel motivated, if we feel happy, we're going to go out there and do successful things. But really, this is, you know, this is 150 years ago now. William James said that they actually go together and sometimes it's the other way around that sometimes action leads to the feelings. So, if you can get out there, get out of your own head, stop thinking that everyone's out to get you, start realizing that you can make something of yourself, that's when you're going to go out there and take the action. Yeah, thinking about the interpretation of the event. So, I remember the obstacle is the way it spoke about this, this happened, that is objectively true. The event happened, but then what comes after that, you say this is bad, that's not objective, that's more subjective. So it's your definition of what happened in your life and the narrative you create around it is going to have a huge influence on how you start living after moments of worry. So that's it. That's the first part of starting living is recognizing that our lives are what our thoughts make of it and that by changing our thoughts, we really can change the way we experience life. The second part here is to not fret the little things. He tells us a dramatic story. March 1955, World War II, there's a submarine with, with 88 men on board. They, disco- they discovered there was a Japanese convoy coming their way. All hell broke loose. They thought we're, we're all about to get wiped out here. And there was a lot of panic. There was a lot of people who were stressing out and a lot of people thinking about their deaths. For 15 hours, they bunkered down. They tried to remain as calm as they could. But one guy told the story of how those 15 hours felt like 15 million years. It was like his whole life passed in front of him. Mm. He remembered all the bad things that had happened, all the bad things that he had done, all the bad things that had happened to him. But then he realized how little and how absurd all these things were that he'd worried about. He'd worried because he couldn't own a new home. He was worried that he couldn't buy a new car. He was worried that he couldn't buy his wife new clothes. He was worried how he was hating his boss and wasn't enjoying his job. And he realized in that moment that all those things are so tiny and Mm. not even worth worrying about compared to obviously getting wiped out. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine being 500 meters underwater in a submarine with all these bombs going off for for 15 hours? And you will learn a lot in a situation like that. But hopefully for everyone listening right now, it doesn't take an experience like that to learn this lesson that all those little bloody things, that, those little beetles that attack your brain, they're, they're just bullshit little beetles. You don't have to worry about them. And I think it is common people who have those huge events like a terminal kind of illness or a near-death mm. experience. It takes that to snap people out of this to learn this lesson. So there's a quote by Disraeli here, probably a big dog in the early 20th century. Yeah, wasn't he Prime Minister of the UK? Yeah, yeah, okay. Was he? I think so. 
we go. Anyway, he's a, he's a wise man because he said life is too short to be little. I like it. It is. It is too short. Dale was walking down the street one day, concerned about what lay ahead of him, concerned about a whole lot of things that were happening in his life, concerned about all the things that he couldn't do, all the things that he didn't currently have, all the things that he wished that he could have. And whilst he was walking down the street, he saw a completely opposite kind of a man. He saw a guy who was sitting on a skateboard with no legs. He had a block in a wooden block in each hand that he was using to pull along the ground and propel himself forward. And this guy on the skateboard looked up to Dale who was, you know, worrying and he was had this stress on his face. And the guy on the skateboard said, Good morning, sir. It's a fine morning, isn't it? And within that very instant, Dale realized that he forgot all of his worries, realizing that in the in the grand scheme of things, his worries were, were pretty tiny. Yeah. He, was, he had a lot of good stuff going on in his life. Yeah, you can always just look around to someone else in the world and there's always someone who's going through a level of suffering that is 10 levels beyond mm. whatever you think you are. There's a good quote here. It says, I had the blues because I had no shoes until upon the street I met a man who had no feet, which is absolutely the yeah. case. I think any suffering that, say if you lose your business or you lose your home or anything like that, you know, that's relatively to your country, that's a lot of suffering. But really, you can just look across borders and someone out there is actually hungry and isn't able to feed their children, right? Like, mm. So, there's always anyone listening now anyway. I don't think we're – if you're able to listen to a podcast, I highly doubt that you're actually at the rock, rock bottom mm. of what the human experience is. Yeah, most certainly. There was a story in Time magazine of a sergeant who was in war who'd been hit in the throat by a shell fragment from a bomb that had gone off. He needed seven blood transfusions and then he was heading into surgery. He was pretty worried. Obviously, it's, that's pretty serious to be mm. in war. A bomb goes off, you get sliced across the throat. And he said to the it's doctor, not good. <laughs> not good at all. He said to the doctor, will I live? And the doctor said, yes. And then he said to the doctor, will I be able to talk after this? And the doctor says, yes. And that's when the sergeant realized that, look, what the hell am I worrying about? Mm. If I've got those two things, if I'm alive, if I can still talk, nothing else matters beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at the worst case scenario of whatever bad thing is happening to you, usually the worst case scenario is not that bad anyway. Mm. Will you be able to eat? Yes. Will you have a roof over your head? In Almost certainly, yes. Mm. 90 or 95% or probably 98% of the things in our life are great. But unfortunately, we too often focus on that 2% of things that are wrong. If we want to be happy, we need to focus on that 98%. And if we want to be sad, then we're going to focus on the 2% of things that we don't have yet that aren't going perfectly. Absolutely. So there are two things to aim at in life. One, to get what you want from all your goals. And then number two is enjoy it. And only the wisest of mankind achieve the second one. And that's the enjoyment part. I mean, everyone else is just a never-ending story on that treadmill of wanting more and more and more and never getting there and focusing on what you don't have rather than having the gratitude for what you've got the whole time. When Dale was a little boy, he was playing with some of his mates in the attic of this old abandoned house. So he was in one of the bedrooms of this house and he went to climb out. So he rested his feet on the windowsill and jumped. And he had a ring on his finger though. And when he jumped, the ring caught on this nail head and it tore his whole finger off, right? It's not good. And he screamed and he, he was absolutely terrified, right? Like his finger basically fell off, which in the moment is a lot of, <laughs> going through a lot of pain. It's fucked up. Yeah. You don't want that. But after the hand healed, he never really worried about it again for a split second despite how intense that worry and that pain was at the time. So after the finger fell off, what is the use of worrying? Now mm. the finger's not there. You forget about it. You move on. That thing is not coming back. So what he's saying here is he accepted and he cooperated with the inevitable. 
That's it. You could spend a whole life thinking about, man, if only I wasn't wearing a ring, if only I didn't jump off the window, if only I didn't go into that house. There's so many things that could have gone differently that day that meant he would have still had that finger. But once it's over, once it's done, it's inevitable. He lived the rest of his life with a thumb and three fingers and he just had to cop it, realize that there was nothing more that he could do to change it, accept that it was inevitable and just live the rest of his life. And this is the first aspect of making the most of a bad situation. Big Willie style, he makes another appearance here. Uh, Big William James, that is, not Will Smith. Be willing to have it so. Acceptance of what has happened is the first step to overcoming the consequences of any misfortune. I mean, shit's just going to happen and when it happens, uh, there's no changing it. There's no point worrying or fretting about it. It's happened and you just need to cooperate and, and move on. That's it. That's part of the, the mindset that we need to have moving forward that we've been dealt with this hand and that we shouldn't be overreacting to the circumstances around us. We need to recognize that it's happened and we need to recognize that this is inevitable. There's nothing more that we can do. He says, just like the masters of jiu-jitsu teach their pupils to bend like the willow, don't resist it like the oak. It means that we can bend, we're flexible to all the things that happen around us and we're not just going to snap when something goes bad. Okay, so shit's going to happen. Another way of saying that, you could say life's going to give you a lemon. Every now and then you're going to be dealt off a hand in poker that's not good right you know seven deuce in in poker very poor hand and the poor hand's one thing but the second aspect is what are you going to do with that hand so when life gives you that lemon you can whinge and complain about it or whatever or you can go out there and make lemonade from this there's a farmer who had a plot of land that wasn't at all producing what he hoped it would produce he wasn't able to grow fruit there was never enough food for his pigs it was nothing but just like scrub and salty earth and rattlesnakes. There was rattlesnakes everywhere. That's a that's a lemon. Even Carnegie says that's, that was like a poisonous lemon. Yeah. There's, there's not much more you can do about that. You can't grow fruit to grow. You can't raise meat and sell that. All you've got is bloody rattlesnakes Ooh, everywhere. Imagine that's going out and buying that farm and you're expecting to go out there and planting all your apples and all your fruits and everything. And then... <laughs> I don't know what they, how they sound like. Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> and then a rattlesnake has a go at you. It's not You'd good be at all. you pretty pissed off. It's not good at all. But uh, this farmer, he realized he's got this poisonous lemon here. How can he possibly turn that into a sweet, sweet lemonade? And so what he did was he wanted to make the most out of these rattlesnakes. He had rattlesnakes everywhere. He could bring um, tourists who were coming to check out these rattlesnakes. He had 20,000 tourists a year coming to check out his snakes and his business was thriving. He was able to take the poison and sell that to labs who were able to develop some anti-venom. He was able to chop up some of these snakes and sell the rattlesnake meat off. He was able to get the skins and sell that off to make women's shoes. It's pretty crazy that he was able to turn this pretty bad situation into something good, kind of like the Tiger King. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't know, mate. I got off that piece of shit documentary <laughs> on the second episode. But there's a good quote here that goes along with that. And the North Wind made the Vikings. So whenever did we get this idea? I think it's a generational thing, right? It's very common and popular that we're all about this secure and pleasant living and the absence of all this difficulty mm. and the comfort of ease. And whoever thought that all these just ease of life where everything's just fine is the thing and the key that's going to make your life good or happy. It's like if you were never put through any stress whatsoever in your life, you come out of your mum's womb. I've got to be careful when I go off on a tangent. Um, and then it'd just be from there, goo goo gaga, goo goo gaga kind of stuff because you're not hmm. going to be stressed with anything and you're not going to learn and grow from any really outside experience. 
So in history, happiness and growth in character comes from all kinds of circumstances, whether it's good, indifferent, or bad. And it all comes down to people just shouldering personal responsibility about what's happening. I was just trying to think how can we extrapolate this um, metaphor even further. And, you know, one is to be expecting the goo goo gaga that everything's going to go well. There's going to be never anything bad come your way. It's kind of like getting an apple and then turn that into apple juice. Mm. Apple juice is like it's good but it's not that much better than an apple. But if, you're, if you've got the ability to cop a sour lemon and then through adversity you've, you've learned how to transform that sour lemon into a sweet lemonade, mm. that's much better. Yeah, I like <laughs> it. What do you reckon? I like it and then yeah. I continue this analogy on. When the times get good and you start get giving apples, you've still got the lemonade yeah, and the apple. So you you getting better. the upside of the bad times <laughs> and the upside of the good times. Exactly. It's probably not a good combination. <laughs> apple and lemonade. Yeah. No, that's that's all right. Yeah, okay. I suppose it's better than you know just hoping for apples and then if you cop a lemon, you're screwed. Yeah. yeah. I think it's good. Now the third piece of advice here about making the most of a bad situation, which is a really big one that everyone can do starting right now, and that's just bringing the right attitude to work. If you bring the wrong attitude to work, it produces boredom, fatigue, worry, resentment, and it's very easy to slip into bringing the wrong attitude to work. He says that there was Alice who was an executive. One night, she came home utterly exhausted after a tough day in the office. She had a backache. She had a headache. All she wanted to do was sit down on the couch and lay there and rest up. But when she got a phone call from a friend who said, hey, do you want to do you want to go out and have dinner and let's go for a dance? Immediately, her headache was gone. Mm. Her backache was gone. She sprung up and she ran out of the house. Yeah. So it's very interesting that uh, in that moment, something that she was excited about, something that she was happy about was able to cure all that fatigue and worry and resentment that she'd built up from a tough day at work. Yeah, it just shows that the amount of energy that you bring to the present moment is just a matter of how you're perceiving the moment and the attitude that you have. So, you know, she could have had that same energy, bouncing energy, uh, that she had for this dance that she was invited to and she could have had that in her day-to-day work and imagine if she had the same attitude in her day-to-day work mm. and the two different paths that leads down for your work if you're just bored and miserable about it or if you're proactive and positive about it all. Yeah, if you can bring a good attitude and find a way to enjoy the work you're doing, it's a completely different outcome to if you're hating it and you're resenting it and you're hitting snooze on the alarm and wish you didn't have to go to work. Carnegie says that there are millions of people just like Alice who come home every work exhausted and bored and tired and one of them it could be you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's a lot of people and you can blame it that you're not passionate about your work but it's kind of backwards because your passion should happen about your work and then if you just act as if you're passionate, over time you might find out that you actually are learning new skills and growing in this area and your passion might just grow organically from it. There's a story here of, he tells of someone who went to his course, Harlan Howard, and I think this story can apply to everyone listening right now to a degree. So he had a pretty dull job at his school. He used to work in the ice cream shop and he used to scrub containers and wash plates and just feed all the other kids ice cream so he despised his job but he realized all right i'm doing this job anyway i might as well stick to it and try and enjoy it because i'm going to be doing it anyway so in that moment he resolved to study ice cream he looked at how it was made the ingredients what was used why some were better than others and because he started studying it he started to actually enjoy it and become more passionate over time, he got skilled at it in food chemistry. He won a prize for the New York Cocoa Exchange for 100 bucks, so probably let's call it a grand. <laughs> and if you think about it, 25 years from now, who are the people who are going to be leading the food chemistry profession? It will be people like Harlan Howard. And Harlan Howard, when he was younger, 
those who were his colleagues and they were also despising their job but they chose to do nothing about it, they're the ones who are going to be sour and miserable, probably unemployed, blaming the government, complaining that they never had a chance. But in reality, everyone's really got a chance. It's just how you resolve to make a dull job interesting. So now that we've, we've learned to stop worrying, now we've learned how to start living. We need to be bringing the right mindset in that we need to recognize that what we think about things affect how we feel those things. We need to not fret over the little things. We need to focus on what we do have rather than always worrying about what we don't have. And then, of course, there's always going to be some kind of setback. We're always going to be dealt some kind of bad situation. We need to recognize when these things come along, we need to either cooperate with the inevitable or we need to take that sour, sour lemon, bring the right attitude to work and turn that sour lemon into a sweet lemonade. Oh, yeah. Yeah.